Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Hope Recovered podcast. I'm Kristen. I'm Sarah Mays. And I'm Amy Bechtel. And today we're going to be talking about things that don't go with my tone of voice, actually, because I'm <laughs> I'm so excited for us to be back together, the three of us, that you can hear the joy. But actually, what we're going to be talking about today is trauma and the impact that it can have in our lives. And the reason that we're doing this topic is because we just came through a very, very stormy time. Now, here in West Tennessee, we are right on the edge of Tornado Alley. So this is nothing that we're, you know, it's not a new thing. It's nothing we're not used to. But I have three kids who are really from North Carolina. I moved them back home and they are not used to it. And so just, you know, freshly coming from the closet and hiding from storms and thinking about traumatic things has kind of inspired me to want to talk about the role that trauma can play in people's lives. The other thing that happened last week is that I was able to be a part of an amazing training called Building Strong Brains, which is all about ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, and how trauma can really just weave itself into our psychology, our biology. Just really interesting to um, think about the impact of trauma. So we're going to talk about a trauma-informed approach today. Anybody want to take a stab at defining that so I don't want to define it (laughs) really but really I think it's mostly about just looking at people groups of people as not knowing have they been through trauma or not almost assuming that they have been through trauma and approaching them from that standpoint you know recognizing that everybody has had trauma in their lives groups of people individuals you know recognizing the signs of trauma being able to respond to trauma when you see the signs of it and making sure that you resist re-traumatizing people absolutely and you may be thinking oh no this is not something that's common But we know from science that it is, indeed. There was a study done in the 90s that was sort of an accidental discovery by these folks that were working with an insurance company. And this sample of people were in California, and they were middle-class white folks who had really good insurance, okay? And they were seeing some problems, some health problems, specifically with obesity and the related health consequences of that. And they just kind of wondered, you know, how can we help these people? And in an effort to figure that out, they started asking them all these questions. And these questions had to do with things that happened in their childhood, stuff like, were you sexually abused as a child? Or did somebody use drugs in your home? Was there violence in your home? Was there a divorce? And those kinds of things. And what they found was the vast majority of those folks had at least one of those traumas occur in their childhood. And that really surprised them, especially when you're dealing with a population that that should, at least according to our stereotypes, be from a good, stable background because they've got good, stable employment. Most of them are educated. They weren't from a minority group that was traditionally marginalized or anything like that. And so that really kind of gave them this light bulb that, hey, trauma is common. And it doesn't just impact us mentally, it 
impacts us physically, mm-hmm. right? They found that in this study, they found that there were connections between higher scores, they called them ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences, but higher scores were correlated with heart disease, with shorter life expectancy, things that you just would not think. And of course, things that you might expect like substance abuse mm-hmm. or mental health diagnoses. We keep tossing around the word trauma. So I want to talk a little bit more about what we're talking about there because, you know, we all experience trauma differently. So while a storm may be traumatic to Will because he's not used to it, you know, growing up in West Tennessee, when it gets springtime, it's time to prepare for tornado watches every week. Mm-hmm. And I'm a, I'm a little bit less concerned about it now. Maybe even a little bit more than I should be. Mm-hmm. So that may not be as traumatic to me as it was to him. So let's kind of talk about a a base definition so we can understand what is trauma. Before we get to the base definition, I want to belabor your point just a second because that is an important point you're making. Human beings are very individual. And so when we talk about research, we talk about trends. We talk about averages that we use statistics to communicate that. And so we say most people in a given situation are going to feel this way or do this. But we always have to Even if we look at a demographic group and say people who look like this and people who've been through these things are going to feel this way, we still always have to remember that everybody is unique, that there is, you know, even if the statistics and the research say you should feel thus and so, you still might be somebody with an anxiety disorder, let's say. So what is not very traumatic for everybody else in your people group or in your region or even in your family may still hit you totally different. But let's let's do a good definition of the word trauma. There are several, but a really good, simple one to understand is trauma is any type of distressing event or experience that can have an impact on a person's ability to cope and function. Trauma can result in emotional, physical, and psychological harm. Oh, that's a good one. Mm-hmm. And that really spreads it out. So it's not just combat veterans who right. have trauma. It can, it can be anybody. And so when we look back at the ACEs study, there are 10 areas of trauma that they look at. So there are three type of ACEs split into 10 categories. There's abuse, physical, emotional, sexual, neglect, physical and emotional, and household dysfunction. So having a a parent or someone in the household who has mental illness, an incarcerated relative, mother or father treated violently, substance abuse in the home, and divorce in the home. And we also, these days, have an expanded definition of ACEs, too, because there are some new ones that people are considering adding in to that list. One of them is being part of a group that has historically been marginalized. So if you're a part of a minority group where you have dealt with discrimination and prejudice, that's one that's being considered. And there are some other things that the research is examining right now. They just haven't been looked at with data. It's kind of intuitive. You can kind of think about things that are traumatic that aren't on the list. Mm-hmm. And now that I've got the expanded list. <laughs> there you go. So someone who has witnessed violence, mm-hmm. so are in a high crime area, felt discrimination, adverse neighborhood experience, bullied, or lived in foster care. So I'm going to read some of these questions. And now you're thinking about this from a period So from when you were born until you were 18, how often, if ever, did you see or hear someone being beaten up, stabbed, or shot in real life? So that's witness of violence, 
while you were growing up? How often did you feel that you were treated badly or unfairly because of your race or an ethnicity? Did you feel safe in your neighborhood? Did you feel people in your neighborhood looked out for each other, stood up for each other, and could be trusted? How often were you bullied by a peer or classmate? Were you ever in foster care? So that's, I mean, they're very simple, straightforward, yes or no answers. When you answer yes on any of them, it marks one point towards your ACE score. And anyone with four or more ACEs is at a significant risk of health issues later in life. Now, that's not to say that those are certain, and there are definitely things that you can do to combat those ACEs and build resilience in kids and things like that. So it's not just doom and gloom. You know, if you have four ACEs, you're doomed to have a heart attack by age 40. No. But, you know, there are definitely things to look out for because these do affect people physically as well as mentally and emotionally. And when we look at people with high ACE scores, and we we define that as four or more, we see lack of physical activity, smoking, alcoholism, drug abuse, missed work, severe obesity, diabetes, depression, suicide attempts, or ideation, um, STIs, heart disease, cancer, stroke, COPD, and broken bones. But let me just jump in here and say, what is predictable is preventable. Exactly. So mm-hmm. we don't want you to hear us saying that, again, Kristen just said, we're not doom and gloom. Knowledge is power. So we know that this statistical relationship exists between trauma and these consequences, but science has given us all these gifts in the way of things we can do to mitigate the impact of those traumas. And that's where we get into the discussion of resilience building. And that's why we want to talk about a trauma-informed approach, because the way that we approach other people can either re-traumatize them or help to build resilience. And I don't know about you, but I want to build resilience. You know, these are and some of these things are so simple that you may be doing them and not even know it. But we want you to be empowered and basically to be very intentional about doing those things and doing them more if they can build resilience. And we're not just talking about kids either, because it's never too late to build resilience in a person's life and and to help them. And now we do know the brain is more flexible and more plastic, um, can can change and shift and grow a little easier when we're little. But we're always growing. We're always changing. We're always just filled with possibility. And so even if you're dealing with an adult population or you're just in relationships with people in general, you don't have to be a professional. But this is just how you are with your friend or your cousin or your mom. You know, um, you can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the helping profession with me, working with people one on one every day, it's the most important thing to me to make sure that there is no re-traumatization because when I'm working with somebody, there's always already been trauma. Always. I can't Mm -hmm. name a time when there hasn't been. Um, And so it's important for me to make sure that the system that I work with, whatever it might be, a a treatment center, a hospital, does not cause any further harm because – in all honesty, not everybody has a training or an education to where they recognize the symptoms of trauma and they in unintentionally cause more trauma. And and it's hard because there is red tape. There are rules that have to be followed. There are systematic things in place 
that have to take place a certain way. But even with that, there's always things that you can do to make sure that a person is not re-traumatized because the systematic things that are in place are not their fault. Right. So I try to be that buffer between the person and these red tape things so there's no other refurther traumatization that goes on in their life. And you can relate to this, if, listeners, if you just think about situations where you're uncomfortable and let's say... Let's go to the DMV, for example. You know, let's say it's time for you to be retested for your driver's license. I don't know why, but I just hate that. I don't like to be tested at all. I have performance anxiety, okay? So (laughs) I'm afraid I'm going to forget what this sign means or that sign. I just don't like those kind of performance measures. And so I'm already kind of in a situation where, ugh, I'm uncomfortable. Now, I will tell you I do know why. I said I don't know why, but there's all kinds of stuff in my past, traumas, um, performance-based yucky things that are a part of who I am and so when I go in there and I encounter somebody who is the worker there if they approach me in a certain way it's going to either enhance my feelings of anxiety or it's going to calm me and help me navigate through that I can be re-traumatized by someone who is hateful and impatient and who does not practice good customer service Or I can be bolstered and supported and kind of navigate that situation in a resilient way and maybe even future situations if someone is patient with me and kind and welcoming. It's really, it's not rocket science. It, It really can just be as simple as people being nice. Being nice, yeah. Yeah. And just taking into account another person's feelings. Uh, perspective taking is really important you know just taking a minute to put yourself into somebody else's shoes you know if you see a child that's terrified that has just been through a storm you're not going to look at them and say get over it it's just a storm no you're going to say it's okay this is what we can do to stay safe during the next storm it's just like that for any adult that's been through any other trauma you wouldn't treat them like that so why are you going to treat another person like that Right, exactly. One of the key resilience building factors that we know about is at least one safe, stable, nurturing relationship. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, interestingly, that relationship can be found in a very dysfunctional home, the very place where the trauma is being generated from. So maybe there is a grandparent in the home that can provide that when a parent is actually abusive, or maybe one parent is abusive and the other one isn't. And I bring this up because sometimes we take for granted things that you know, are, again, really simple, but have so much power. If we have at least one person who we can kind of predict how they're going to be and that they are a safe place to land and that they're not going anywhere, we can depend on them. It has so much power for us to navigate even the most difficult, horrific things that we can imagine. And, and we have opportunities to be that for people. Another thing that we know can help build strong brains and that can help children grow, um, even if they're in difficult circumstances, is to provide serve and return interactions. So what we call it, just think about a tennis match. You know, somebody hits a ball and then somebody returns the ball. And that's kind of, you know, the back and forth of that. Um the things that we do intuitively, a lot of times, for when we're interacting with kids, can provide that. 
that um, think about being at the grocery store and you see a really cute little baby. You know, what is your tendency to do with that baby? Yeah, you start mm-hmm. communicating with the baby, right? Mm-hmm. You might say, well, hey, their little cuteness, mm-hmm. you know, and that baby responds and then you respond back. That's serve and return, playing peekaboo, you know, just kind of looking at the baby and the baby looking at you and kind of looking around their mom or dad or whoever. Um, you know, those are simple things. But every time you do something like that with a toddler or a child or a baby, you are building neural connections in their brain. Mm-hmm. And you are teaching them that people will respond to them. They can actually put themselves out there and expect a positive response from other people. You saying that made me think about something. I started thinking about people that I've worked with and thinking about things that have helped them kind of overcome a valley that they're in. Because most people that I work with want to give up. Mm-hmm. I hate to say that, but that's that's what it is. Are they, They're in a really bad place. And almost every time, what helps them is finding that connection. And it's been said a lot of times that the opposite of addiction is connection. Yes. So connection with just one person, finding hope in that one person that gives them joy or peace helps more than anything. Some of these things we can do to build resilience in folks and help them in spite of what kind of trauma they've experienced in the past. We were talking about the fact that some of these things are so simple and we might take them for granted, but I want to bring them up because I want us to be intentional about them. One thing that we know from research builds resilience is to teach people to regulate their emotions, to manage especially the strong emotions that they have. Well, I want to say even before I get into that, that a lot of us don't even feel free to have emotions because of the way that people talk to us or the kinds of interactions that we've had. And I know in my past, I have always felt like I was way too much for everybody. And some of that's because of my mental health diagnoses. And some of it's my personality. And some of it's the people that I lived in my house with, that I grew up with, that were not very expressive about their emotions. Everybody feels emotions, by the way. Some of us just express them more or less. That's the difference. And, and that's true with genders as well. Men and women both have emotions. We just might express them differently. So anyway, part of being that safe, stable, nurturing person for somebody else is actually helping them navigate their emotions as well. And you don't have to be a therapist. You don't have to be some expert. Sometimes you just need to listen. And I think that's really hard for a lot of us because we feel like we have to have an answer or we have to fix something. But there's so much power in just being listened to you know, having a space where nothing else is interrupting you and no matter what the emotion is, even if you know that it's bratty or ugly or, you know, you know, maybe it's not the most rational thing that you're feeling, but somebody could just listen without talking. That is resilience building. Mm -hmm. That is amazing. Now, you know, there's the regulation part of that as well. When we start to get a little more technical and, you know, some of that is helping other people to express their emotions in an appropriate way. And sometimes that is just even offering to go somewhere private. Say it's your workmate and y'all have just gotten this memo from higher up or whatever that's unfair and ridiculous and both of you are feeling like, what? And you have all this emotion about it, which is okay because emotions happen to us. What we do next is what's up to us. That's what we have power over. And so you being that person says, let's go 
get takeout and sit in our car and talk about this. And then you can say whatever you want to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> get yeah. it out. Mm-hmm. You know, but saying what you want to in the office to your supervisor is probably not the best. You know, and sometimes when we grow up, let's say in a situation where everybody said whatever they want to, whenever they wanted to, that's our pattern. That's mm-hmm. what we learned. But that can be redirected. That can be relearned. And so, um, you know, just normal ways of being a friend or a coworker um, that are done intentionally, like deciding that you're going to be that person to listen, can really have so much power. Yeah, I think even better than saying trauma-informed care so we, you don't scare people off. Anybody who's listening to this, anybody who just is a person that has a friend, mm-hmm. all you have to do, or just a person, you just mm-hmm. have to be nice. Yeah. You just have to care and be kind and be nice and take a minute to get out of yourself and look mm-hmm. at somebody else. That's all it takes. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just a few minutes telling somebody hello, smiling. It can be really simple to be trauma-informed. Mm-hmm. Making eye contact is another one of those simple things that's come out of the research. It really is interesting if you stop to think about our culture and how we are with technology and how busy we are and just the way we interact with people, we don't have as much eye contact as we used mm-hmm. to have. And that is a serotonin building thing. You know, when we connect with people, when we have eye contact, and you don't have to make it creepy. It does not have to be. <laughs> it's always creepy for me. <laughs> that is, yeah, I, know, I, I can kind of relate to that, too. I mean, I was watching your face. <laughs> but, you know, just enough to make that person feel heard and to connect, you know, just for a second, you know, instead of looking at your phone when you're going through the drive through actually look at the person. How are you today? Thanks. And that's enough. Mm-hmm. And going back to the situation you described with maybe with a coworker, what we need with when we express emotions like that is to be told that they are valid. Yes. And we may not need to hear those words. Your emotions are valid. Mm-hmm. But when I express emotion to you and and you nod or listen or, you know, or even just attentive, like you said, put the phone down, make eye contact, I'm receiving the message that I'm being heard mm-hmm. and understood and validated. And, and it can be something that's completely irrational. And that happens a lot with me, especially with my anxiety. I mm-hmm. understand that a lot of times my emotions are irrational, mm-hmm. especially when I'm in the ramping up towards a panic attack or something like that. I don't like that irrational. Mm-hmm. I think all that feels judgy, that's your feelings. I guess what I mean by that in a better way of saying it, the thought that is leading to that mm-hmm. is irrational. And so, you know, I'm, I'm learning and dealing specifically with my mental health diagnoses that sometimes my thoughts are not rational and that's because I have anxiety doesn't mean it's not real and it doesn't mean the emotion is not real or valid Mm -hmm. and and because a lot of times I will invalidate myself with that and say well it's just my anxiety it's stupid I shouldn't be feeling this way Mm -hmm. but I am and at that point when I am having that emotion I can't do anything about it that's right yes I have learned or am learning to accept the emotion where it is write it out and then I can process the thoughts that led there and try to learn new ways of coping with it but sometimes in that moment you just need someone to sit there with you Mm -hmm. right be in the space with you without deciding that it's right or wrong that it's healthy or unhealthy no advice even no advice no right let's make a plan sometimes it's just Mm -hmm. hey let me be here with you Absolutely. And there's an important distinction in what you just said, Kristen. When we support somebody or validate them, that does not mean that we're saying you are correct. 
those mm-hmm. are different things. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think sometimes people shy away from that language because they feel like they're, you know, to be to validate somebody just go, absolutely. You know, your truth is the truth. But, you know, there are different ways to look at that. And in a relationship, it's not always the most important thing for something to be correct or mm-hmm. incorrect. Mm-hmm. There, there's a time for just being with mm-hmm. someone in their space. We're being with each other right now. Yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the clinical aspect of it. And Sarah, you talked about handling the red tape for the people that you work with. What do we do as lay people? Everyday individuals, you know, we just in relationship, being with people day to day, how can we be, we be trauma informed? Well, one thing that we think about is, I mean, there are as many ways to be trauma informed as there are to interact with people. So it's not just in relationships. I mentioned a minute ago that sometimes everyday interactions like someone at the drive through or a child at the grocery store, you know, if we are informed about trauma and we're informed about ways to build resilience in people, then we can do the sim- simple things, but powerful things like make eye contact and have kind and open conversation and do some serve and return interaction with children especially but we also have to think about other interactions like social media yeah absolutely and something i've seen a lot recently especially on social media but in kind of in everyday life too is that people are starting and i don't know if it's new (laughs) by any means but i have at least been starting to see people say things and they don't think people are listening so if you've got, let's let's use stick with social media here as the example. So if you have your Facebook or your Instagram and you post something or share something, it doesn't get any likes. You just assume no one saw it. You shared it for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Or you're sharing it out into the void. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have comments or engagements on it, a lot of people don't think about the impact that may have on other people. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that sharing things or even creating posts do have an impact on people and the way that in itself can be re-traumatizing to someone if you know depending on what the content of the post is but to understand that even that can have an impact and I had a conversation with someone relatively recently where I had been seeing their post for a couple months and it just it was continually negative things Mm-hmm. And finally, I, I, I hit a point where I reached out to them and I said, look, I've been seeing this and I'm really discouraged because I look up to you and this is what I've been seeing. And, and honestly, I'm kind of disappointed, but I'm but mostly I'm, I'm just really discouraged. And they, I mean, pretty much said, you know, I didn't know anybody saw that. Mm. I thought it was funny. I didn't think it affect anybody, but you make a good point. And I'm going to pay more attention to that. Thank you for bringing it up with me. And it was one of the best conversations I've had in a long time. But to hear them say, I didn't think anybody was reading that, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, what we put out there impacts people. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, well, I think it's very courageous of you to be willing to have that conversation because, you know, the key piece of trauma informed is informed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, you can't know what you don't know. Right. Right. 
Um, so once you do know, and that's the reason we're doing this podcast, um, you can actually consider, oh, you know, social media is social. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we don't think about that sometimes. You know, um, I think about it all the time because I have social anxiety disorder, but mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's not in a healthy way a lot of times either. I don't want to make people mad at, at me. And that's not to say that that we can't ever be negative negative in and of itself is not bad Mm -hmm. it was just the cumulative nature of that um, maybe but also the way you're negative too right so um you know sometimes we are fed up with certain things and i think i mean you know it's okay to express ourselves but we we always do want to think about the people we're friends with, you know, the people who are going to see that. And the context, like it's okay, like right. you said, to express negative emotions. And going back to the, the co-worker scenario, nothing changed mm-hmm. in that scenario except where they were processing that emotion. Exactly. And so we have to think about the context. And maybe if you're doing that in the office, even if you're not confronting your supervisor, someone in the next cubicle over could hear that and mm-hmm. that could be traumatizing to them because that's you know because you don't know what they've got going on or or if they were affected in the same way you were or things like that you never know what someone's got going on and so we really just need to be aware of what's going on around us Mm -hmm. and who may be impacted by what we say Mm -hmm. you know if you think about these things you know once you become trauma-informed it really is kind of this amazing, mind-blowing new way to look at people because human beings naturally look at people. That's all the information they have. And so if somebody does something weird or wrong or dangerous or whatever, we just look at that person and assume it has everything to do with who they are. What's wrong with you? But a trauma-informed way to look at people is, what happened to you? And it is amazing because it really unleashes compassion. It gives us the vehicle to get more intimate with people and understand them better. And the relationships you have, even with strangers, can be so much richer. I have just, I've really, once I learned about the ACEs study and I started to think about it, I'm fascinated by people. I have less judgment for people. I have less fear of what I don't understand. I'm just curious. And because I have all kinds of hope, because I know about resilience building, you know, I really, it just makes me want to talk to people more and understand people. I just want to say I had a good example of trauma-informed care that somebody actually showed to me. And that's one of the best ways that you end up learning how to be more trauma-informed is when somebody shows it to you. Mm -hmm. Last week, I had a horrible week awful and I was supposed to do the podcast with Kristen and I just couldn't Mm -hmm. and I messaged her that and she could have been like well you know I'm sorry but we gotta do this but she just said okay she didn't ask me questions she didn't ask me why she just said okay and that's what I needed at that point in time and that's it can be as simple as that just saying okay and not having to have a reason or want this big explanation or feel, make that person feel like they have to explain themselves. Sometimes it's just, like y'all said, being there. Mm-hmm. How freeing is it? I mean, just, you know, those of you listening, just think about this scenario. How freeing would it be for people to just meet you where you are? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I can tell you um, just from my own personal experience that I lived a very exhausting life 
so many years of trying to be who I thought somebody needed me to be or say what I thought they wanted me to say. And it's kind of like being in this play where somebody else is the director and you don't have the script. And it's just constant anxiety and stress and striving. But for someone to approach you in this way and to just meet you where you are and be in your space with you is so amazing, so freeing. It's peace. Mm -hmm. And you can give that to somebody else. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I love about ACEs and that I think about all the time is that people will look at people you know, let's say two kids that come out of the same household where there was abuse and ridiculousness, and one of them is awesome and the other one isn't. Um, and people don't understand that, and they want to make that all about the person. But it's really not necessarily – it isn't. We know that resilience is not something that's just a personality thing. It's You're not just born with it. Mm-hmm. It is made and created and bolstered and grown through relationships. Mm-hmm. That's That's what it is. And we see so much – well, well, kids are resilient. They'll bounce back. Mm-hmm. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And it's not necessarily that kids are resilient. Mm-hmm. They can be. But we have to foster that in them as adults and meeting them where they are. Right. And just continuing to build relationships and build those neural pathways like we talked about at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, all it takes is a positive, stable relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, when we talk about development, one of the first things kids learn is trust versus mistrust. Absolutely. And yes. so, you know, when they're an infant and crying and mom picks them up, they learn that they can trust mom. Right. As simple as changing the diaper. Mm-hmm. You know, again, things we take for granted. Or talking to them, mm-hmm. talking back to them when they're yes. giving you those, you know, coups and all that. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. Absolutely. And that sets people up for success. And when we look at two people coming out of the same family and we say, why did that? Why was that one okay? Chances are they had somebody from outside the home. Maybe it was a librarian. Maybe it was a teacher. Maybe it was the bus driver. Just somebody that they encountered, you know, in a, on a consistent basis who actually met them where they mm-hmm. were, who was kind and, and you know, just enabled them to have hope, mm-hmm. to trust. And so that's, I mean, that's why we want to have this conversation mm-hmm. is so that we can foster that in people to just be aware. I mean, you don't know where a kid is coming from. You don't know where adults are coming from. Um, but in those everyday interactions, to be aware that your your words and the way you talk about things, the way you approach certain topics have an impact. And so... I'm sure at different points we'll talk about stigma and stigmatizing language, mm-hmm. and, and that may actually be a good topic for us next week so we can follow up and piggyback off of this. Mm-hmm. But to understand that we can have an impact and we can either re-traumatize someone or we can build resilience. And if we are informed, then we can be intentional. Um, so we hope that has been beneficial for you. We hope this has been an eye-opening conversation and just really want to encourage you to, like Amy said, don't think what is wrong with you or don't say what is wrong with you. Instead, when you look at someone, think, what happened to you? And, I mean, we can see that in everyday life. Mm-hmm. And so we hope that that can be a challenge for you. We thank you for coming along with us on this conversation. It's, you know, not the most fun or lighthearted conversation, but I think it's definitely one that's necessary. 
As always, just want to remind you, if you like what you hear, be sure to, to rate and review on your podcasting platform wherever you're listening. We do have social media pages up. So you can find us on Instagram at Hope Recovered or on Facebook. Just type in Hope Recovered. And so please interact with us on there. We'd love to hear from you. We'll have updates. Hopefully we'll have some, you know, some different places to interact, to discuss and have conversations about the episodes. So we would love to hear from you there. If you have any ideas of topics, things you want to want us to cover, any questions for us to answer, reach out to us there and we'd love to incorporate those into the podcast. So again, thank you for, for listening. We are glad you're here. And as always, we just want to remind you, we, we do, do recover. recover.